So we spent a bit of time this morning trying to contemplate future roles of actuaries, particularly in the DC environment and where we'd like to take um, the industry. This next session is specifically on the rules of DC funds and the actuary's responsibility in approving their financial soundness. We have two people to talk about the topic. The first is Gert van Linde, who is hopefully well known to all of you and claims not to be adding to the average age of valuators being north of 45, um, but has been a stalwart of the industry for some time. Um, since 1981, when he was the chief actuary of Stan Standard General, um, and it's become quite hazardous to be the chief actuary, so he's moved out into the consulting world. He operates very much in the retirement space, but also was the first chair of the damages committee for the Actuarial Society, and so has many war stories in terms of dealing with lawyers and actuaries and their interpretation of the law. And so, as any wise actuary will do, he will seek expert advice, and in this instance, he's got Pierre Reynick next to him, who's been advising to the retirement fund industry for over 36 years, um, of which the last 20 years an independent specialist. Um, he did his master's thesis in labor law and the effect of actuarial practice in defined benefit funds. He's currently an examiner for the University of the Free State for their advanced postgraduate diploma and master of laws and financial planning law. He's also a contributor to the Manual on South African Retirement Funds and Other Employee Benefits, a member and past vice president of the Pension Lawyers Association, and he's previously served as a former South African representative and steering committee member of the International Pensions and Employee Benefits Lawyers Association. So both gentlemen have impressive CVs, and I'll hand over to them to take you through the discussion topic. Thank you very much for the opportunity to present. Uh, the presentation will be in three parts. Uh, I'll just quickly make a few remarks and then Pierre will take over and in the middle I will uh, discuss specific cases on the rules that I recently came across and then Pierre will close the presentation. Uh, as rules are the main management uh, manual for a pension fund, the rules must be accurate and correct, and also it must be within the Act. Pierre? Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for the invitation. You must speak longer. We don't questions here, sir. In looking at, at the subject, um, rules of DC funds and the responsibility of the actuary, I decided to have a look at where did this come from? And to approach it, what are the key words in the issue? It's DC funds as opposed to historically DB funds, responsibility, approving, and then financial soundness. If we look at the 1956 legislation, we see there that the requirement is that the valuator must certify as the soundness of the rules 
from a financial point of view. Now, one would have thought that that's pretty reasonable, but, you know, when you start unpacking what is financial soundness and how has it changed over the years? So we're going to have a look at a few, um, the background, and then a few judicial pronouncements, and then we're going to look at a couple of very practical examples and just leave with you the thought, are these rules financially sound? They've all been approved, and they're operating out there, but the environment is changing very radically. If we look at the 1956 wording continued, again, the rules must not be inconsistent with the Act and must be based on sound financial principles. That the fund is a financially sound condition and adequate arrangements have been made to bring it into a sound financial condition within a period which the registrar considers satisfactory. In 2007, the Pension Funds Act changed and Instead of having the detail in Section 4 of the Pension Funds Act, it was moved to the regulation. Similarly, conditions prescribed by the regulation is what the registrar was looking at. And the regulations there quite clearly said that the rules shall be based on sound financial principles. If we look at the 2014 wording, we see there that particulars and the particulars as prescribed and that's very important because from 2014 there's a definition of prescribed and prescribed means by the registrar by notice on the official website unless notice in the gazette is specifically required by this act the point is that in moving and changes to the pension funds act the regulations are now no longer applicable and we are looking at the website to find out what the requirements for financial soundness are. I think that's an oversight and I'm sure Rosemary is busy correcting it at the moment. If we look at rule amendments, you're again looking at the effect that the rule amendment may have on the financial condition of the fund. Similarly, if one looks at the background, DB benefits changes to DB benefits, your uh, accrual rate or final average salary or something like that would impact on financial soundness. Hence the provision. And this wording is still very much from an old DB-orientated point of view. If we look at Section, um, section 12.4, rule amendments there, again, the registrar must be satisfied that the amendment is financially sound. But there is no definition of what financial soundness actually is. In the Medical Schemes Act, there is a definition, and a medical scheme shall at all times maintain its business in a financially sound condition by having assets as contemplated in Section 3, providing for its liabilities, and generally conducting its business as to be in a position to meet liabilities at all times. Similarly, Medical scheme shall be deemed to have failed to comply with the provisions of Section 1. If it does not comply with that, the medical scheme shall have assets, the aggregate value of which on any day, not less than the aggregate value of the value of its liabilities and the net assets as may be prescribed. The Long-Term Insurance Act has got very similar provisions, but there is no guidance in the Pension Funds Act. 
from a financial principles point of view, the court has already stated that the rules of any fund must be based on sound financial principles and the board of a fund is obliged to ensure that members' interests are protected. Now, here is a change in emphasis to the board. The actuary is a functionary of the fund and is to, there to assist the board, but the board carries that responsibility as well, which then begs the question, the service level agreement between the actuary and the fund. I haven't seen many of them, but I'm sure that they do exist. The challenge is that a fund is financially sound if the assets match its liabilities. And I think that that is a very, very serious challenge to the extent that particularly where there is individual member investment choice and the portfolios are in market-linked portfolios, switching portfolios frequently results in a mismatch. And as far as DC funds are concerned, I don't know why all DC funds are not valued by actuaries. I'll be very frank with you. I think that they should, particularly larger ones, because there is invariably a mismatch between assets and liabilities. Financial soundness, from what I've been able to establish, is based on a DB concept, where the actuary is required to value the fund and determine its liabilities. If we look at a DC funds at the moment, the function is part accounting as to the financial soundness, its accounting principles and the auditing, etc. It's part function actuarial and part function legal, and the members are carrying all the risk. The problem is that DC funds, the financial model, is not valuation-based. Member carries the financial risk, and this exposes members. Valuation basis is a sound principle on which all funds should be valued and managed. But unfortunately, DC funds is considered to be a sort of a savings account that we manage on a group basis, and there are many concepts and, and, and requirements that are missing there. I think what is important is that in the tech case, and it is frequently quoted that what trustees may do with the fund's assets is set forth in the rules. If what they propose to do or have been ordered to do is not within the powers conferred upon them, they may not do it. So all detail and all accounting requirements and member movements need to be spelt out in the rules. And now I'll ask Herr to address a couple of examples, and I'll follow up with him after that. Thanks, Peter. I almost, uh, it happened this, uh, a few years ago, and I almost want to say once upon a time I've been appointed as valuator of a beneficiary fund, uh, but it happened a year or two ago, and the first requirement or request to me was to issue an HB certificate. I got the draft financials, and uh, if you look there, this is more or less how the most important items on the financials were. Uh, the expenses were 4 million, assets 40 million, Contributions, 20 million. Benefits paid, 8 million. So it was quite an active fund. Uh, I then, before I 
issued the HB certificate, I request the rules of the fund. Now, beneficiaries, in addition, uh, members of a beneficiary fund are actually the most vulnerable in society. So there must be rules, in my opinion, that protect them. The, I got the rules, and what did I find? There were no provision for the expenses paid. If you go back, you will see there were eight, four million expenses paid. There were no provision for the expenses paid. There were no reference how the expenses will be financed, or there were no reference to any external agreement. But the rules were accepted as financially sound. I did not have an, uh, a record whether an actuary certified or not. Now, rules are, as I stated in the beginning, the management tool or the management manual for the fund, as well as certain, uh, cover certain government's issues. Uh, what does it mean, the, the requirement to certify financial soundness? What does it take from an actuary to sign, sign rules financially sound? Is it an easy automatic signature? I would say one should be very careful before you sign anything as financially sound. These, the solution that the trustees had was to fire me. The, uh, the, but when you look at a, a normal pension fund or a retirement fund, the member benefit is the most important thing because the purpose of the rules or the purpose of the fund is to provide benefits. So the way benefits are described in the rules should be, in my opinion, be very clear. Now when rules are referred to me, the first thing I look at is to see whether the benefits can be, according to the admin method that the administrator follow, can be determined in terms of the rules. It must be, in my opinion, very clear, or at least there must be a reasonable outline. I just want to go to the most common method in DC funds uh, to determine benefits or the, let's say, the retirement withdrawal and retrenchment benefit. Units are purchased in, in a portfolio or portfolios with contributions and that the new, new units are added to the previous accumulated units. There may be a provision in the rules for explicit proportionment deductions of eligible costs or expenses. I ignore refinements, but in the end, the value of the benefit equals number of units times units price when sold or notionally sold. There may be more than one port, uh, portfolio. What I'm not discussing at the moment is the calculation of unit prices and the definitions of portfolios within a pension, within a retirement fund. It can be, it's the most difficult thing to, to, in my opinion, to certify that the unit prices and 
were, correct, were calculated correctly. I want now to go over to a case study uh, in which I was actually of the fund for about 14, 15 years, and then they changed the administrator. And in the draft rules, the common method was already des uh, de described in the draft, or no, in the final approved rules. But there were a lot of amendments, so we want consolidated rules, and we issued an instruction or request to the new uh, administrator to consolidate the rules, plus to bring in all new statutory requirements. The admin method was as described, which I call the common, most common method, may not be. Um, and the fund paid substantial fees for the calculation of unit prices of various portfolios. I'll give you three extracts from the new draft rules that was received at that stage. First one was the definition of calculation date. Now, I have no problem with that. I only say that on that date, the benefits will be determined. The next one was a definition of investment returns. Now, if you look at that definition, if you read through it, the action required by the trustees. Now, when this request was forwarded to the new administrator, the uh, they were already for two years the administrator of the fund. In the two years, they never referred anything about investment returns to the trustees, though this rule required continuous actions by the trustees. And also... There were no consultation with the administrator how to determine from time to time the investment returns. But then the benefit was defined or is defined as fund credit. That shall mean on the calculation date the accumulated value of contributions to which was added investment return. Now, the investment return were never calculated, not by the administrator, nor did the trustees agree to any um, method of calculating the investment returns. I refused to sign the rules, the new draft rules, and uh, it happened with two different funds. And at the moment, I am accused of being here splitting hairs, uh, and I don't want to bring my, I just want to go back to the common method. That's the method that should be described in the rules, at least outlined. The result is that return of investment is now IOU. The challenge that we have is how to describe in rules the, the determination of benefits if the rules are wrong but you can by going around actually calculate the fund credit or the member benefits 
will that be acceptable? I conclude my presentation again with you can only do what is in the rules. Thanks, Pierre. The next two slides are extracts from currently approved rules, and I think that they are fairly representative of the type of DC fund rules that are currently in the market. Here we have an employer contribution rate of 10% of members' monthly pensionable salary, and then the net employer contribution rate, which is used to determine the equitable share, is the employer contribution rate minus expenses in respect of the fund described in Clause B, premiums in respect of group insurance benefits, and premiums payable in respect of separate insurance benefits, which are obviously described in defined terms. If we look at the monthly pensionable salary, there we have the basic monthly salary or wage which a member receives from the employer together with provision of, of a few other variances. Nothing untoward about that at all. And I think one can just have a, understand why these rules were approved. But as we know, times they are changing quite rapidly and we have a situation of no work, no pay, no contributions, no admin fees, no risk-benefit premiums, which equals financial instability. That's my attempt at an equation there. I know it doesn't match yours, but it's, I'm trying. I'm trying. The point is that administrators would now be expected to pay the group life premium for risk benefits in that fund, but with no contributions and no and, uh, coming from the employer, they have to reduce equitable shares. But there's no provision in the rules. You sit with a quandary. How do you pay the administrator? And remember, this recent strike went on for five months. That's five months' worth of risk-benefit premiums and five months' worth of administration fees, which I expect in many instances were not paid because of the no-work, no-pay arrangement. And the rules, from a risk point of view, probably did not provide for a reduction of the member's equitable share to pay for administration charges and risk-benefit premiums. And this is a legal type of quandary which has moved away from the valuation basis with which actuaries are familiar with into a realm of the liability is sitting in the rules. Another frequent example which, which I have seen is where group life benefits are provided in a pension fund rules, but there's a mismatch between the policy of insurance and the benefit provided in the rules. And if the policy of insurance doesn't perform, the fund is left wanting to pay that benefit. And there have been a few adjudicated determinations in that regard. Some rules qualify that that will only become liable for the payment of benefits if the policy performs. Others are silent on the matter. And frequently the members just told that the insurance policy didn't pay out because you weren't at work on the first day or for whatever reason for repudiation is. And people accepted they don't all go to the adjudicator to have a look at their rules and find that there is in fact a benefit due to the member. But those rules are signed off as financially sound. That exposes actuaries to liability. And I think that that's an issue that the actuary is, is, is posed with, with a legal problem for which his training is, is, is not suitably provided. Because we have changed from a 
valuation basis of retirement funds to a DC basis and the components for determining financial soundness are accounting, actuarial, and the legal dynamics in the equation as well. From my point of view, I would suggest that the association should issue a practice note on this issue for actuaries because it, it, it's a liability exposure which is very uncertain. And if one looks at recent um, decisions of the court where we are starting to get class actions getting uh, press space, then we are becoming a more litigious society. And that exposes actuaries to risk. I think from a lawyer point of view, my attempt at Masia to find X, well, there it is. And then actuarial advisories, I don't know for the folks sitting at the back there how clearly that is coming out. But under phase one, board members see the problem, but they refuse to listen to you. Under phase two, board members are in trouble, but they refuse to see your solution. Under phase three, board members are flabbergasted. Your recovery plan is accepted and your advice is rewarded. And then given the current environment, please, I hope actuaries never go on strike. Thank you very much. Do you have any questions? Can I have a mic for Rosemary in the corner here? While a mic is coming through, Pierre... To what extent can you as an actuary rely on the administrator's practices? So one of the examples was referred to and the practices adopted by the administrator, which obviously change in time. So is there a requirement then to investigate those practices? Do you take the quality of those practices at face value? Or are you required to be notified every single time those practices change? Yeah, off the cuff, I think that a board of trustees appoints an actuary for his own independent opinion and valuation of the matter. If the actuary wants to take the uh, information from the administrator at face value, then I think that's his assessment of the situation and he carries the concomitant risk. Hi. I just wanted to mention that some, uh, I think you said that the regulations are no longer applicable in relation to the standards to be applied to pension fund rules. In fact, they are. Until, until we prescribe different standards, they remain in force in terms of the, the Interpretation Act. So uh, we have had people thinking that they're no longer enforceable. The Regulation 30 is there. Um, but there's also, also a provision in Section 18 where, heaven help us, I get to prescribe financial standards for financial soundness. Um, so... Again, input on that will be, be welcome. Thank you. No other questions? Okay. Thank you very much, gents. Um, it's not often that we get both the Deputy Registrar and the Pension Funds adjudicator speaking to us. Um, and so we have a nice full agenda today, or 
very honourable speakers coming to, to speak to us rather than just members of our own profession. The next topic is challenges the actuarial profession poses. Um, it's a bit concerning when you think that we're part of the problem rather than the solution. Um, so hopefully at the end of this presentation we become more of the solution and a little less of the problem. Um, our pension funds adjudicator, Mavangu Lukamani, commenced her responsibilities as Deputy Pension Funds Adjudicator on the 1st of June 2012 and, were, and as adjudicator from the 1st of July 2013. When you look at her CV, she has a great sprinkling of practical industry um, experience at Sunam Employee Benefits and Liberty Personal Benefits and also as a Principal Officer at, at Eskom. And then she decided to collect a whole herd of degrees behind her name at the same time. Um, a number in the legal side, most importantly a master's, um, pension funds practice, and also an MBA. I think that she really needs no further introduction, and so the pension funds adjudicator to talk to us about challenges the actuarial profession poses. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation to come and speak to you. I think having said all of that about the host of qualifications, it's a good thing you didn't say anything about the institution, lest people go and check whether they are really there or not. <laughs> so please don't go and check. <laughs> it's, it's been a torrid time for as public servants and qualifications. So give us a break just. <laughs> um, when I was preparing for this talk, I had two talks that I was preparing. One was saying that I should talk a little bit about, um, to my fellow ombudsman, a little bit about where I see the future of pension funds. And I think that's the it then permeated into what I need to talk to you about. Because if I look a little bit forward, what we are more or less saying to members is that um, you are actually on your own. You are on your own to navigate this retirement benefits industry and um, as a member or an investor, you need to work out the required level of savings that you need to put aside in order to have a little bit um, saved at the end. But at the same time, I was also preparing our annual report, which um, unfortunately tells the same story all the time. Most of the complaints that we'll deal with in our office are related to members not happy with the returns that they get out of funds. 58% of the complaints that we deal with deal with um, members not happy with their, fund, with, their, with their returns, whilst 10% actually have to do with RAs and what happens, you know, with your causal event charges and all that stuff that goes on in RAs. But that then tells you that in 70% percent of the cases that we deal with, we deal with people that are actually unsatisfied with the promise that they were given. It has not materialized into what it was supposed to do. 
Unfortunately, also, if you look around, we live, I saw quite a few people um, playing around with their cell phones during the talk. Not that that's a bad thing. I just wanted to say that you have people that are used to information that can be boxed into 160 characters to say something meaningful. Therefore, when you get an actuarial report that is this big that you cannot uh, deal with or with, a, with advice that is complicated, complex, even young adults can't deal with what is it that they need to put aside because of the manner in which it is presented to them. So what then becomes your role in all of this? I know that Mike is here. Mike, where are you? Okay. Mike is, has been our consulting actuary for a long time. And if you ask him in a corner, he will tell you that I'm always very unhappy when he says I must reject a complaint because it makes actuarial sense because I look at it and I say, but it doesn't make reasonable sense to me. It doesn't sound reasonable, therefore, if it makes actuarial sense, if I can explain it to the person who has complained to me, I would like to reject it. And Mike will then have to give me an additional two pages to try to get me to his point of view. Sometimes I do get him in trouble with some of his colleagues because they then say, but why did you advise in that manner? But I think over the period he has learned to accept where we come from as an office. And I think that that is one of the things that I should have said way in the beginning, that as a statutory office, it might seem a little bit um, awkward to all of you to say that I, we actually take our mandate from the bigger purpose of what government is there to achieve and what government is there to do. I am not saying that we close our eyes to what the retirement fund industry is all about. We take what that purpose is, what the statute says we must do, and we try and marry everything to the purpose of why we were set up in the first place. Earlier on, I, with the Alexander Forbes um, presentation, it was Alexander Forbes, right? Yes, with that presentation, I saw a little bit of what happens um, I know what you didn't say was that I spent seven and a half years in government working for the National Intelligence Agency. <laughs> um, it's a good thing you didn't say that, but that uh, what I wanted to say about being there is that it actually, citizens don't actually think that the government goes into a lot of planning and scenarios and all that when they see what the implementation results in. So they do go through a lot of planning. So when people go through a, an election and they say a better life for all, every government department goes sits down and say, if I'm social development, what does it mean for me to deliver a better life for all? But what I saw earlier on with that presentation was also about how you, as a profession, you plan and then you go about implementing, but the result is actually exactly what happens when governments 
when government goes about doing its business, the result doesn't materialize into what you plan to do. It remains this elusive dream for a pension fund member to say that which was projected to me is what I got. Even if the inflation was correct and all of that, people never really get the promise that they were given. So then, which then takes me back to um, maybe it is a question of, as a profession, you might want to divorce yourselves in order to save your profession. You might actually want to divorce yourself from who pays you and then give proper professional advice irrespective of who actually is paying for that advice but whether that advice still serves the purpose for which it was supposed to. If you work for a traditional life assurer, for example, most of the complaints that I would meet would be around um, RAs, because you never really give independent advice. I don't believe so. I know um, Rosemary would want to believe that even actuaries that, attached, that are attached to big life assurers give independent advice. I think I'm still looking for that one actuary who is giving independent advice. And I say this because whilst the members of these funds are not realizing what it was that they were promised, I have yet to see the company not realizing the margins for which they were promised they are going to get. So there is a disjuncture between that which the company is making out of the members and that which the members at the end are, are making out of your advice in terms of their funds. So I thought it has been some time since I caught up with what has been happening in your profession and I thought let me just go and see what has been the latest things that could have resulted in a change within the industry that then ends up in, in adding a little bit of confidence and value to the work that you do. I must say that I was a little bit disappointed because the same three, four names that cause rackers now and then were the same three, four names that I could find as having said something in the defense of members. And I know that, Pierre, you touched on the issue about um, how do you define that which a person gets out of, out of a fund. These days, I don't know how many of you in this room are actually um, appointed on a cost to company basis. And if I marry it to the earlier presentation that took place before lunch, I see members that complain because they didn't get the retirement benefit that they were promised. I do not see the members complaining about the risk benefits that are actually the ones that are eating up the fund costs. So if you are saying to me that um, members are more or less concerned about things other than retirement benefits, I would beg to differ because what I see is members not understanding why is it that at the end 
in other instances, I'm even getting less than what I as a member put in. And the explanation that comes back is admin cost, risk benefits, and all of that. There was a big adjustment. I remember I was working at Sunlam at the time when projections of dire HIV AIDS are going to materialize and all of that. What never happened was that when that didn't take place, no one ever went back to look at, to adjust their models to say, did we actually, costs never came down. They continued to rise and for risk, but for, I can't, I don't know where the explanation is. Maybe today at the end when I finish, someone will actually comment as to where is that cost now coming from because it is actually impoverishing the members that you are trying to get to a retirement. In that other presentation, of course, that I was preparing about futuristic, where is it that we would be, that's where I am getting to the fact that the big thing is whether you can actually give people their retirement promise because I was made to understand by one medical doctor as I was asking them about inventions and innovations, they said to me, in five, six years time, if you drink your liver to death, we will give you a new liver, we'll develop a new liver for you. So people are going to live longer. Not that I was drinking, by the way. <laughs> he was just giving an example in terms of that. But your profession is more about negating speculation. That is where it originates from, that at least using tools, using all sorts of skills at your at your disposal, you are able to minimize speculation. What is materializing, though, is that it's more speculative than ever. If I look at the, at the complaints that we receive at the office, really people are not even getting half of what they were promised. And if I get, I know I just referred one fund to them, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Rosemary, to say that in terms of Section 18, you can declare the financial soundness of a fund. I've just referred one determination to here where the trustees are basically saying, yes, we let the deficit of this fund grow from 14 million to 100 million, but you know what? We have given the registrar a scheme as to how we are going to correct that. But at the end, they then add something out of tech peer which says, and if we can't, we'll just cut the benefits because the rules say we can cut the benefits. To all those members, it depends at what stage of your life you are when the trustees decide to cut the multiple of your retirement from 3 to 1.5. If you are two years away, you'll never recover. If you are still far, you might just recover. So for me, what I look upon to your profession is that the young people must regain the confidence that they have seen being eroded but by what happened to the promise that was made to their parents. I read something, I think it was out of the old mutual benefits, what do they call it, that they just re released now, which says that most people have their children as their 
retirement plan. Uh, it actually quoted, I think, a number upward of 50% that they do have their children. If I look at my kids, I doubt that they even want me to consider them as, my, as, their, as part of my retirement plan. They won't be there to assist. Therefore, it is up to you to make sure that when you say to people, this is how much you need, this is what the replacement ratios are, you are actually giving people reasonable uh, numbers that they can work with and you are not scaring them away. I think that also what we must accept as a country, I know that sometimes when we see it as a profession like this, we divorce ourselves from everything else. But we must accept that the focus in this country is already under pressure. Already too much money is going towards social spending. If people like yourself sitting in this room don't make a change in terms of where people need to take their own plans of securing their, their retirement, then you, you will do it in another reverse way. All of us at some stage will pay tax at marginal rates of 60%, 70% to make sure that then the social spending is sustainable because there's no other way that the government is going to get the money except by taxing companies and individuals. So in a way, we need to realize that whatever little bit we are doing in our own corner, it's actually interconnected to what the purpose of retirement planning is. So it doesn't help for the, for the board of trustees when I refer a query to them. Most of the time, the board of trustees comes back with a response that says, our actuary said, this, therefore, this is it. But if you say why, they themselves that should understand and should have taken the decision based on understanding were so overwhelmed by the report that you gave that they could not interact with that they just went with the recommendation that was at the bottom. Because at the end, what I would expect as an office from the from a board of trustees, if we refer a query to them, is for them to actually use your advice as in explaining their decision, not to say our decision was what the actuary gave us, but because also there is a lack of understanding. And I'm not talking about if you look at the defined benefit funds that are left, because that problem usually arises with defined benefit funds. If you look at the defined benefit funds that are left, these are reasonably big funds. And you'll find that the employer representatives on those boards are the financial director, they are reasonably senior educated people. But when it comes to engaging with the information that they actually gave them, they can't engage with it to the an extent that I am comfortable that they understood it well enough to to exercise the, their fiduciary duties in terms of the fund. They just accepted it. I was also glad then in the morning to realize that you it takes you a few more tries to make it through your communication exams because that explains also a little bit of what I see coming through. But really, you really have to take your your communication 
to members and your communication to boards of trustees to a level that they can understand. It doesn't help if you give them technical information and they can't make sense of what it is that you are saying because at the end they are also not empowered to to exercise the fiduciary duties that they have in relation to the fund. Um, I think one thing also that I am generally happy with is the I have yet to meet in the beginning when I had quite a few old um, complaints in the office we had a semblance of what looked like conflicts of interest as far as actuaries are concerned I, I, I am really glad to report that in a way that to some extent I don't see it coming through in terms of the of some of the issues that I have to deal with but I remain concerned about um, the advice that you are providing in terms of its usefulness to members realizing their retirement promise. I think it is a little bit skewed towards big, big um, companies or towards the corporates than what it needs to be and you just need to realize the space within which you are the space within which you are operating go back to the purpose for which a retirement fund industry was set up for and in that way we can all then assist um, members realize their retirement profit promise not profit with, with those few words, I thank you very much, and I hope that our since you have lent, heard a little bit of my concerns, our interaction from here onwards will be a little bit better, and Mike won't have the heart palpitations that he has now and then. Thank you very much. Are there any questions for the adjudicator? Yes. Mike. <laughs> Getting it back. <laughs> Thanks. Um, often uh, when I disagree with Mubanga, it's not about the fact that I actually disagree with her, but because I'm restricted in what I'm allowed to do in terms of the SOI. So I actually take this treat customers fairly very, very seriously because I really think that what's happened in the RA field, what's been happening to individuals, has been very, very unfair and very nasty. And it actually reflects very badly on the insurance industry. Where it's going to lead us to, I don't know, but I'm quite upset about it. I have quoted this example before, so for those of you I've quoted to you before, please I apologize, but let me quote it again. A young lady takes out an RA. She works for a couple of years and then gets uh, she loses her job. So she's forced to reduce her premium by about 75-80%. After a while, she manages to get a new job. So she manages to um, get uh, to push her premium up to the, to the normal level again. Full commission is paid on the increase. Sometime after that, she has a baby, stops working for a while, so reduces her premium, gets hammered a second time. She then, uh, after the baby's a bit older, she starts uh, working again, starts paying her premiums, pays full commission another time. Again, after that, she loses her job, same story. Each and every time, the full commission is hammered on her because of what happened before, and the full commission is paid thereafter. Totally and to unbelievably unfair. I just don't know how we get away with it. 
I know this is not an RA uh, group, this is a pensions group, but nevertheless, the insurance companies need to understand how unfair they've been with the, and they need to really relook at the way they pay commissions because that's a very, very unpleasant situation that happens at the moment. Thank you. I think if I can just add as a comment, we are also looking forward as an office to the introduction of treating customers fairly because, as you know, right now we are more restricted to looking at exactly what the law says. What that introduces is a little bit of equity considerations and therefore um, I think we will be going in terms of of um, what we see as being unreasonable and unfair right now, either we are going to have a a start where we are a little bit more litigious towards each other while we settle as to what those six principles are because currently what members are really getting the short end of the stick. Uh, just a comment from my side. I think um, we all in the, in the room actually want what's best for members. And um, it should be it shouldn't be an adversarial relationship between us and the pension fund adjudicator or, or us and and the FSB. And I think uh, we've got Mvangu talking here today, so I think it's the beginning of a, a, having a more open uh, relationship. And like you said, 70% of the members, it's about expectations not being met. Like John said, just improving communication with us and the members and, and with the regulators. So um, I think we, we all want to, to get to the same place. we maybe not on the same page. I must admit it is quite frightening if you're coming off the back of the sort of bull run that we had that three out of five complaints are about existing benefit levels. So given we've heard from both the Deputy Registrar and the Ombud, I think that, I think that it's time that we revisit our little appraisal score. And so if we can just go for the questions again, if you were doing an appraisal for our own pension saving system, would you rate it excellent, good, average, poor, or disastrous? And let's see if we've changed our opinion since this morning or we've all figured out how to use the OK button. OK, it seems as though we have more fence-sitters this time around. And then the next question, how, how do we rate the actuarial profession's involvement in the retirement system? OK. Seems as though we're a little harder on ourselves, so maybe the lunch wasn't that great. And then to see if John and Kelsey inspired us in any way, what should we spend more time on in terms of improving the scores that we've just seen? So improving insurance benefits, making them more flexible, communicating and delivering more dependable investment outcomes, Communication to members or the two things the Treasury are forcing us to do in the next 12 months, enforcing preservation and getting annuitization right. All right, we back to communication, so at least we've been consistent there. Um, we're a little ahead of time, um, so hopefully we can take half an hour's tea now to be back at quarter past, which then means some of our Cape Tonian delegates can join us for a quick beer rather than having it in the business class lounge on their way back a little later. 
So see you back at quarter past.